Cool, so I want to just start this off in prayer, right? Can we do that? All right, so Father, Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for this session. Lord, we thank you for this. I thank you for this honor of being here. Lord, I pray you would use me right now, Lord. Every word, Lord, that I speak, Father. Lord, I pray for your spirit to come. And Lord, just give it, help me to portray this thing in a way that um, these men can receive, Lord. And I just pray for our hearts right now that are open to receive. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, for... Uh, introspection in this session. I thank you for um, barriers to be broken, and I thank you, Lord, above all, Lord, for the freedom, Lord, that's going to come, Lord, the freedom that you can bring through your spirit. Lord, and we give this all to you. We pray for your spirit to move in this place. Do what you want to do, Father. All authority we give to you right now. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. All right. Cool. So first, I want to just start this off with a big question, all right? And this is the big question that um, it's uh, why does the people of the world have so much suffering, all right? And how is it solved? Now, there's a lot of smart guys I'm here in here, I'm sure. So some of you may come up with um, political re- things we can talk about. You know, we need to vote for this next president, and he's going to help solve a lot of problems that we have in the world. Or you know, my, some of you may have economic reasoning, so we can talk about. But above all else, there's going to be no reason there's not going to be no answer that is going to satisfy this big question except for the simple reality that nothing and no one can do what is necessary to ease the world's suffering except Yeshua the Messiah himself because what is necessary the parts of people need to be changed you can try and solve as many problems. You can solve all, every problem that the world has today in a moment if that was possible. And tomorrow it's back. It's all back because the, my, even though the physical problems may have been solved, and there's no poverty for a day. But the next day, there's poverty again because of the greed of a man's heart that was never solved. And so now, so we know that, okay, the, the answer for, to, to ease the world's suffering is Yeshua, and it is solved. What can we do? It is solved by getting Yeshua to the world, letting the world see that they need relationship with Him. It's kind of it's simple, right? We all know this. But now the big question is, is how do we actually do that? Now we can talk about great evangelistic strategies, and I'm, I'm, I love that stuff. We can talk about you know um, all these stu- these plans, and it's great to have those talks, right? But at the end of the day, look at what Yeshua says. He says something that's kind of that kind of when I read this, I was like, this is going totally over my head because it is not something that I would have come up with. And he says this. He says. By being one. He says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I gave to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have saved me and loved them even as you love me. He, he, the thing that he says of how the world will know and believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and was sent by the Father is if we are one with him just as he was one with his Father. That means this thing here in this place, we as people, as men, 
But not just as men, as families, if we come together, we need to be one. And then he says, it is, they will know you by the love you have for one another. By the love you have, that is how they will know you are my disciples. You need to be identified by that. By the way, that is how they know. And that is how they will actually believe that, that Yeshua is the Savior. And he's the one that solves the world's problems. But now when we look at not just a specific congregation, but in general, when we look at the body of Christ, have we done this? Are we in unity? Are we being one as He was one with His Father? No. In fact, we've got 33,000 versions of His body today. And there are certain that couldn't be further away from that. And tomorrow there's going to be an extra denomination. The day after is going to be another one. Because we can't figure this out. I want to submit to you, if we figured this out, the world will see. And then they will start. But now, the bigger question actually is, because there's a root to this. If we want to be one like this, we, want to, we need to ask another question that the scripture teaches us. And that is, what was the first person ever that God told us to be one with? Adam and Eve, right? He says this. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. This is the great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's saying, okay, so we, we know about, okay, we need to be one. But before any of that, really, the first thing we are to be one with is our wives, if you have a wife. If you don't have a wife, this is still important. You have to listen anyway. <laughs> so our, what if, just, just a what if, what if your wife is given to you to teach you how to be one with someone? What if that is one of the reasons that we have wives because let's be honest what is it what happens marriage is super difficult why because now you need to become one flesh with another person who is who has got different ideas different dreams in some ways they they do the dishes differently they brush their teeth differently they make the bed differently and they do everything else many other things differently and now suddenly we're supposed to be one with them like that's what god that is what the definition of marriage what if your wife was given to you to teach you how to be one. And until you learn how to be one in that way with a wife, there's no way that we can be one. There's no way that we can be one in this way. That is where it starts. And when we dig deeper, when we look at congregations, when we look at the body and we look at why we are so far apart, it's because we have men who have never learned how to be one with a wife. And so they have children who has never learned or seen what it looks like to be one with someone like their, her, their mom and dad had to be one. And now they come into a fellowship, into an assembly, into the body of Christ, and they don't know how to be one with anyone else, and they don't know how to love, because the love is demonstrated in the marriage. He says this, this is the great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church. So he's saying there's a direct link. The, the husband and the wife is directly and a, a picture of Christ and his bride. That means that the love that is supposed to be in a marriage is, is a picture of Christ's love for his bride and for his people. And this also, this in itself, this being one with our wives, 
just like being one like this with each other is the thing that changes the families and that then bleeds into the world because the world will see uh, husbands and wives actually love each other because the world can't love their wives or husbands without Christ. Sorry, it just it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. It can work for a day or two, but then it just falls apart. But we are called to be different, to love radically. And so today we're going to talk about what does that love look like? Because when you look at this, he says this, a man, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how? How shall he be leading the assembly of God? How shall he be, not even just leading or, or being a teacher or, or any of that, but how will you even be a part of it? How will you be able to effectively move in it if you can't rule your own home? And so when we look at who the enemy is after, if he, the enemy knows this. He knows if the priest falls, the whole house falls. And when we rewind back to the first century, that's exactly what Hasatan was up to. We, the, the, the elite elders of the Levitical priesthood at the time of Yeshua, many of them had fallen. Many of them had bowed the knee to the enemy in some way or another, whether it was for greed. or for, And that's why Yeshua was continuously coming up against them and why they were continuously against the very Son of God and why they couldn't see love when love was walking right in the midst of them. And so we see that the start, Levitical priests, okay, they, they fall. Then we go on. And we see thereafter Satan comes in the same first century and he sees the Melchizedek priest. He sees Yeshua himself and he sees and he knows if I could get this one to fall, his whole house falls. And in the wilderness, Satan approaches him, right? And he says, bow before me and you will get everything in this whole world. I will give it all to you if you bow before me. And the enemy was after Yeshua's heart trying to deceive him by this. Because if you, imagine if Yeshua did bow. Imagine what would have happened. None of us are sitting in this room. We're all condemned. There's no, the whole, this priest fell. If he, if he fell, the whole, whole house falls. We are all have fallen. And we are all now as men, as all of you, every single one of you sitting here. You are the very priest of your own house. And this is what the enemy is after next. Because if he gets you to bow the knee in whichever way, and it's not a, he doesn't approach like, hello, I'm Satan, it's about, no. He comes to you as an angel of light with really good looking things, and he says, if you bow before me, or if you do whatever, forsake anything for what God has told you to do, and for the calling he has given you, in that moment, you have fallen. In that moment, you have failed the call as a priest. And so I would like you guys to, if you, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to open in Ephesians 5. I'm also going to be reading off the slides. If you don't have one, no problem. Okay, we're going to go through, you can just read with me. But in Ephesians 5, we, well before this, we just read, we just read how we are a, the, the husband and the wife is a picture between Christ and his bride, like we mentioned. But now, wouldn't it be a good idea then for us next to figure out how did he love his bride so we can learn how to love ours. Okay? So this is what Ephesians 5 is all about. He says this. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
Okay, we love, as men, we love this one. Come on, guys. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit everything in their husbands. Okay, and then we, no, we may need to want to read on here. Um, He says then, husbands, love your wives. Okay, get this. As Christ loved the church. Whoa. Okay, that's right there, right there, that, that line right there. That's the most difficult commandment that you have ever received. Because you, think of what he's saying here. Let's just talk about this for a second. He is saying you're supposed to love this person who is so different to you in many ways. Who is, but you're supposed to be one with her now as, as how? As Christ loves his bride. Now let's just, what did he do for his bride? That's true, but not only that. He died for her, but he died for a bride who didn't want to him, who didn't submit to him, who didn't love him. That was each one and every one of us. He died for us while we were still sinners, and he went to that cross in joy. Think about that for a second. We so easily want to talk about how she needs to submit to me. In fact, actually, she didn't submit to Christ. She only submitted to Christ after he died. You only start submitting to Christ after you saw the love he had for you. After you saw the sacrifice. That was the very thing. It is the kindness and goodness of God that draws us to repentance, is it not? Ooh, you see where this is going. The priest has a higher calling in that way. God says to the man to love in that way. But get what he says then. He gave himself up for her like we, we talked about. But he gave, like I said, he gave himself up for a bride who was an adulterer. The, way we, the very reason he had to actually die was because she was far off. Our, Israel was divorced. We read this. While the prophets, it was written. God has divorced Israel. She was far off because why? She whored among the nations. She did the most atrocious thing that, she, that any bride could do. That is what Israel had done. And God could not get her back by any other means except for dying. Because the law says that a husband, if his wife is whored and he put her away, he cannot take her back. That's an abomination to the Lord. So God himself cannot break his own law. The only way that he could take divorce is divorce bride back. The whoring one is if he actually died. So it can be, that can be totally broken because if the husband dies she is free to marry whomever and so now he dies and now he raises as a new man a new eligible bachelor bachelor for marriage and he's able to marry her take her she was and then he made her spotless then then she wanted to submit then all that happened you see it started with god taking the first step We did not take the first step. I'm sorry, not one of us. We didn't. Every one of us sitting here, we didn't. None of us did. He took the first step. And this, guys, listen, this is what I'm saying. This is the hardest commandment. Because this is how God says, you need to have this kind of love for your bride because this is who you are. Just like God had to do this because he is God. He had to. That is his nature. See, But look at what he did. He didn't just... Go to, okay, this is my covenant with my bride. He, he put the covenant aside right in the beginning. He said, this is my covenant. You do this, I do that. That's what a covenant is. It's like a deal in that way, right? According to that written that covenant, God didn't need to die. He didn't need to. 
He really didn't need to. It, is not, it, was, it was only because of his character and love and who he is that he did. He went past the basic obligations of his covenant with his bride. And so that means we don't point to our brides and we say, well, this is not, I don't have this obligation. No, you do because you're a husband, you're a priest. You are to love her in the same way that he loved you. I got really quiet in here, guys. I understand, I understand. I'm saying this because I'm pointing to myself too. But I'm saying this is a hard message. But you need to understand that the only way this can be accomplished is not through your own strength. It's not through what you can do. It's not, and trust me, you don't have that love on your own. I don't have that love. None of us do. It is not possible. But if you have his Holy Spirit, if you have him, if you have the same spirit that live, uh, the spirit of God, God living in you, then only you can actually, and by his strength, through his strength, even in our weakness, but he is strong there, and there he can love in this way. God would never give us a commandment that is absolutely impossible to keep, a commandment he would not equip us to keep, and in this day he has. It is possible. And I tell you that if we are able to actually do this, we're absolutely able then, to be one in this way. And then we're able to let the world. Because if the world saw this. Manifested in marriages. Children saw this. Manifest in their parents. And fellowships came into a room. Filled with this kind of love. That starts with a husband loving his bride in this way. That's what changes the world. Because of him. Because that shows the world. Who our God truly is. And that's what makes us different from the world. That's the thing. It's his love that was demonstrated on that cross we just have here. And so he says there next, he gave himself for her that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You see, he did this so that she can be cleaned. So that she can be cleansed. Like I mentioned, that is the thing that draws her in. That is the thing that says, even if she is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, that is the thing that lets her, lets her say, why do you love me even though I hated you and I did all these things against you? Why do you still love me? And what did Yeshua do? He went to wash the feet of his disciples, of his bride. The picture. You see, and they, they, he hadn't died. They were in their sin still. He did it for her. And so then he said, goes on, he says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That means that he is cleansing her, get this, by the washing of water with the word. You know what that means? He, is the, he says, I am the word. I am the true bread. Whoever eats of me will not die, but will inherit eternal life and be able to live forever. That same word that we each have now in our hands, that is Christ himself, what he has done for us, we are to feed our wives with and our families with. But our wives above all else. You are to water her with the word. It is part of your responsibility as the priest. Just as much as it was the responsibility of the Levitical priests. To, not, to come before God every year. To at Yom Kippur to make the sacrifice. But also to teach Israel from what is right and wrong. That is the role of a priest. And that is what we are to do. Let's read on. And then he says. And for their sake. 
This is in John 17 verse 19. Another way, he's sanctifying her, he's loving her. He says this, For their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. So he's saying it's not just about dying for her in that way. It's not just about feeding her with the word in that way. About watering her with the word. But it's about consecrating yourself too. Because that's what he did. None of us would be sitting here if our Messiah was a hypocrite. Right? If he, he, so God calls us as priests, as husbands. As we are this picture. We need to have radical consecration. A radical desire to walk in holiness. Because she's going to see everything. You guys know this. She's going to see everything that no one else sees. She's going to see what happens behind closed doors. When the world isn't looking. She sees it all. And if you're a hypocrite, you teach the children one thing, but the next day you do the same. Or you try to teach her one thing, but the next day you do the same. She wants no part in that. Just like we would have wanted no part in our Messiah if he was like that. And that's why we consecrate ourselves. That's what he calls us to. Let's read on. He says in Ephesians 5 verse 27. So that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she may be holy and without blemish. Okay. So like we mentioned, this is how she becomes holy and without blemish. is by the sanctification that the husband has and that changes her. Brothers, this is how hearts are changed. It's not by taking the Torah and the Sabbath and whatever else or whatever commandment and pushing it down her throat in that way. It's by loving her radically. Then Yeshua told you. He first loved you radically. He first got on the cross for you. He first did all this. And then he said, okay, now, you see this? I want you to, because I love you so much, I did all this for you. You see this? Okay. This is how we do this. This is how we do that. This is what is the definition of right and wrong. and What is the definition of sin? And then we wanted it. We wanted to keep it. Why? Because we were already convinced of his love for us. We were already convinced of how God has worked in him. And now we want that. We, we want to follow that. So that's where it starts. Brother, so we have no right to push the, even the truth down her throat. Unless we have first demonstrated to her our love for her. And the way that Christ has demonstrated it to his bride. And that is how hearts are changed. And if there's anyone here, I feel there is. If there's anyone here, I feel there's multiple here. Whose wives are in that place. Where you feel like she doesn't want to submit. She doesn't want to do this. Love her in the way Christ loves the church. I'm going to beat this thing, but it's the truth. Next. He says this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is the next one. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, I don't know about you guys, but you know, before this, we read about how Christ died for her. He did all these things, right? But when it comes to this one, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, God, I mean, my body is pretty cool, but it's not like all that. Like how, you know, like I'm supposed to love her like I love my own body? Like that doesn't, uh, what, what does he really mean by this? Well, check this. When we go into the Greek, what the word body is there, the root word that is used there, it brings an entirely different perspective. He says this. He's, the word is sozo, okay, and it means this, to save. That is to deliver or protect, literally or figuratively, to heal, preserve, save the self, do well, or be, make whole. Ooh. See, it's not just about, oh, I love 
this flesh, my body here. It's but it's a bit little more than that. It's what was the what was one of the reasons you initially wanted to follow Christ? It was it was his love, it was all that, but it was also the fact that, hey, I don't want to be destroyed. <laughs> right? It was a decision also, let's just be honest, it shouldn't be the only reason, but it is a reason. It is a reason of self-preservation. We don't want to, we want relationship with him. We want to have eternal life and we don't want to be destroyed because of our sin. That's why. It is a self-preservation decision and it's okay to have that decision. But see now, look at what he says. That's the word for body here. It's to preserve the soul, to save, to deliver. He's really saying it's just as you cherish your salvation in the way that you cherish it, you need to cherish hers. And the way you love your own body for it not to be destroyed, you love her. That means that what you do to preserve your soul, you do for her. That means that you will feed her with the water of the word. And all these things we've talked about, because you play a vital part in her spiritual walk. The husband has been given to cover the wife, and God is his covering. A covering just like God covers us, just like God is there for us, just like God feeds us and nourishes us. We need to, as husbands, do the same for our wives. And then consequently, of course, for the rest of the family too. And now this was the problem with Adam. Adam was a priest who fell. Guys, what we are talking about today, if we had this right from the beginning in the garden, the fall of man did not happen the way it did. That's what would have happened. Because we see, when we look at what happened in the garden, we see this. We see the command is given to man, Genesis 2 verse 16. Eve is not around yet. She has not been created. The commandment is given to the man. Do not eat of the tree. Then we have Eve being created. All right? And then we have Eve that eats. And she says, and we read this, Genesis 3 verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and she ate. And we, we read this. And when we come to this part in the scriptures, up to this point, she actually eats of what God forbade them to do. But nothing happens. Immediately thereafter, nothing happens yet. But only then, after, she gave to her husband. He eats. And then... The eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings for themselves. It was only after the priest actually ate that the actual fall, that was the instant where the fall occurred. Why? Why is it that it only happened then? I want to remind you in, in the Torah, in Numbers, I believe it is chapter 30, the Father gives us an instruction, and he says this. He says, if a husband is the covering of a wife, like if you are married, that is what you are, you are her covering, then there is a law that if she says, if she makes a covenant or a vow with someone, but that, but, and the husband hears it, and he keeps silent or participates, you know, he's, he's not doing anything about it, that stands. But he has a moment where if, when he, once he hears it, he can go and say, I nullify this, we're not doing this, this is not the way. And that vow, that, that, that covenant, whatever it is, is nullified. Amen. 
And that's exactly what Yeshua did for us, wasn't it? When he took us, right? He nullified every covenant that we made with death. Come on, that's what happened. Every covenant. And so that is exactly, though, what Adam had to do himself. But he didn't, he failed. Now, the question is, why? One of the reasons were, first, well, this is some of the, a few mistakes he made, is he didn't water her with the word. Why? Because she actually, when we read in the scriptures in Genesis, she actually misquotes the commandment of God. God told Adam, do not eat. But when the snake came, she said, uh, she said to the snake, God told us that we should not touch it or eat it. Now that may seem not, not, not like a big deal, but she misquoted what God's word is. You see, it's a small thing. But she was literally adding to his word, to the very commandment. Because she, Adam failed to accurately hand over what God has given him to her. Accuracy with the scriptures. That means we need to be teachers that accurately portray the truth to our wives and our families. Not adding, not subtracting. Next, he believed the word of the snake above the word of God. Look, think about what happened for a second. The snake he, he said this, but the serpent said, you will not surely die. That was what the serpent said, right? That God, what God said, it's... It's, don't worry about it, right? You won't really die because you know, you'll be made, made, be made like God if you eat of this. But you see now, he says, you will not surely die. <laughs> but she, she is, she's there. She, excuse me. He believed the word of God, this, the snake above the word of God. Sorry. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for freedom in this place right now. In the name of Yeshua, Lord, every spirit of confusion, God, in this place, Lord, right now, that's trying to come, Lord, in the, in the face of this, Lord, message right now. Lord, there's someone here, Lord, who's feeling like a headache, like confusion, like struggling to focus on this message. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, we break that off now. In the name of Yeshua, Lord, I thank you. Lord, everyone will hear this right now. They will hear this. In the name of Yeshua. Okay, come on. Satan will not steal this. Okay, you see, he's trying to do right now what we're talking about here. He believed the word of the snake above the word of God. Okay, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So, so Eve was eating. Okay, she ate. Adam saw this because he was right there. He, right after she, he gave it to, she gave it to him, right? So she's eating and Adam sees this and he sees she's eating and nothing happened. Right, remember there was silence. There was nothing that happened yet. And she's seeing this and she's just like, and he's like, oh, I guess what God said is, was not true. Because the snake said we won't die and she ate and we actually didn't die. So I guess it's okay. Let me take a bite too. You see, he believed the word of the snake above the word of God. He believed the word of, and you see, in that picture it's a snake, but today, who is the snake in, the life of, in your life? Who is the other voice that, they didn't think the snake was like evil. They didn't even have a perception of what that really was yet. Who is the snake? Who, what is the thing in your life that you uphold above what God has actually told you to do and what you know you should be doing. What is it? Is it a man? Is it a, a career? Is it an aspiration, a dream that is yours but has not been actually brought to the Father on how to execute? Is it What is it in your life that you're upholding and, um, and lifting above the Word of God and what God has called you to do and who He's called you to be 
in your family. Okay, number three. He desired to please his wife. There was peer pressure. The fact is that Adam may have never eaten of it if it wasn't for his wife giving him the option. That doesn't make it her fault. It was his fault. He was the priest. She was deceived. He was not. He knew what he was doing. He had the commandment given to him. He made the decision, but he had peer pressure. He forsake his role as priest. He didn't make a stand. He was a coward in a way. And so God calls us. He says, you cannot be a coward. You need to be gentle. You need to be patient. You need to have joy and the fruits of the Spirit. But you also need to take a stand for truth when the truth isn't there. As the priest, you need to stand up and say, this is not flying today, like Adam should have done. And now we need to ask the question of what does the bride actually look like? Now, when I say bride, you think of this, all right? <laughs> and it's true. The, the God did give us, the, he called us his bride because there's this connotation, and it is true. We are without blemish and holy, right? That's how he makes us, by what he has done for us. He broke that covenant of death. He makes us holy. He changes. He gives us a, takes out our heart of stone, gives us a new heart, okay? And then he makes, gives us the fruits of the Spirit with that, like I mentioned, we then have the righteous deeds of the saints. She is a bride who is going to live holy, walk holy, according to the covenant he's given her. Okay, we have, she has a jealous husband. He is a husband. He says, have no idols before me. Have no other thing before me. Don't lift anything above who I am. Don't glorify anything else above me. I am a jealous husband. Okay, and then he says this. And, and then we also know she has a maker and a redeemer. Okay. And these are things that we are to be to. And, but now look, she's not only that. She also looks like this. <laughs> you see, she's, she's all holy and pretty and she's all that, right? Like when you, if you're, if, you've been, if you're married, like when she walked through the door and you saw her, okay, she's all that. And that's how God sees us. But she's also this. She's also a warrior. That means that we are warriors. That means that we walk in that place. But we're not like the warriors of, the, of this world. You see, the warriors of this world, those who are in armies, those who are soldiers, they live by the sword, they die by the sword, and they trust in the devices of man to win. They trust in their strategies and all their plans to win. But when we look at how God, we, I think it was mentioned earlier, but how God took Israel and he led them, it was by the cloud. Remember this? And this cloud, he, he says, there's this cloud. And this cloud is there. You guys see this cloud. This represents the presence of God. And if this cloud stops, you stop. And if this cloud moves, you move with it. And you do not move if, unless that cloud moves. You do not move ahead. You do not move, stay when you're not supposed to stay. You do what this cloud does. Why? Because this cloud is your covering. This cloud is the thing that protects you. Men, we are, yes, we are the covering. We protect. We are supposed to be protectors, right? We do all those things. But sometimes we forget the one who protects us and the one we, the cloud we are supposed to follow. You see, it is easy to get dependent and to have, find security in things of this world, like having a, a stable job where there's a month, there's a, I know, in South Africa we get paid every month. You guys, I know, I've heard you get paid every two weeks. That's like, well, okay, it's all different. But 
we got paid every month in where I'm from in South Africa. And there you, you grow a dependency and trust on your employer. And you're like, well, I'm going to get paid. And that's, that's your security, right? And I learned this recently because just recently the father totally called me out. I, I was working a nine-to-five job. I was getting that salary. It's nice and stable and comfortable, right? It's, it's, it's fun to find security and easy to find security in that. That is where my bread comes from. That's where my money comes from so I can feed my family or whatever else. And then God told me, he's like, Petey, I know that you're about to get married to Christina. I, you know, I know we're, we're about to get married. This is coming up. Uh, this is coming up, and by the way, you're also going to have to move to the United States. I don't know if you guys know, but it's really expensive to immigrate. <laughs> and not only that, when you get there, you're going to have a visa restriction where you're not allowed to work. So, Petey, I know it's still a few months away, so I know you may think that it's a good idea and responsible and all that to continue working in your job right now because you can save up for all these expenses, but I want, what I need you to do, actually, is I need you to quit your job. Stop it. Stop working for that, for your employer. And right now, I want you to start working for me full time. You're going to give up your paycheck. You're going to give up your salary, your stable thing you look to comfort in. And you're going to work for me. And you're going to see me provide for you. And brothers and sisters, I had to learn. I had to see. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's, no, there's no many sisters here. Brothers. <laughs> you know, I had to learn that that's the way, like, he is my provider, it wasn't my employer, and he provided in a way for things that I didn't even see coming, because guess what, there's so many unexpected expenses, so many, but he sees it from years away, and he provides, and he provides, and he provides, your employer, your boss is not the one who pays your salary, let me just tell that. Whoever it is that you feel dependent on, that's the one who gives you security in life. It can be a man, it can be anything. It is not them. If it was not for God, you would be far today. If it was not for God, you wouldn't be able to find a job tomorrow. God is the one who provides every single dollar in your bank account, every single thing. I just feel like there's someone here who's, who's struggling with that, trusting the Father with that. And hey, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. It's not. It's going to be hard sometimes, but He always provides regardless. Glory to God, brother. So we follow the cloud. He is our covering. As, but the thing is, here's the thing though. If you leave the cloud's covering, if you go your own way, you don't, you don't look and see. You're like, God, you got this plan. If I was like that, I could have, I had the choice. God gave me the choice. I could have stayed on my job. But I bet you that I would have actually brought a curse from disobedience because I would, the cloud would have moved, but I would have stayed. And even though in, my, in our minds it may be like, well, Petey, you would have worked longer and you, know, you would have been able to save more or whatever, but I would have been able to do what God has called me to do. And, and, and I would have been out of his will. And that would have brought a curse, actually. The best place to be is to be in the, under his cloud where he needs you. Even if it doesn't make sense logically, he's the one who provides. No one else. And so when we look at that word for cloud, it's interesting. The root word there, in, in that Exodus story, when he talks about that cloud, he says this. It means, it's the anon, it's the prim, a primitive root to cover, to cloud over. But get this, figuratively, it means this. It means to act covertly or practice the supernatural. This word can also, even, was also, can also be used even to explain you know, things out of this world, um, even things like you know, magic or, or you know, just things that are beyond the natural realm. 
But isn't that exactly what God is? He is our, you know, war, the, from the outside, we are a, bri- a bride can look like a bride, like we just had that picture up there, right? And that's how the world sees us. They see our cloud, they see everything, it, and, we all, and there's just another cloud in the sky. That's how the world sees it. But our God is like covert. He is like a cloud that looks like everything else, just another cloud in the sky. But when he moves, he moves. And he moves in the supernatural. He provides supernaturally and he does supernatural things through you and you and in your life and the lives of your family. As long as you're under that cloud. As long as you understand he is your secret weapon. You are a warrior, but you don't trust in the weapons of this world. You trust in God. He is our secret weapon. And so I want to just, coming to the end here, I want to just show you, is, God is giving Israel here military orders. He's showing them as their warriors. Get this, they're slaves, right? They're slaves. And they just came out of Egypt. And he starts giving them this, these instructions about Israel. You see this cloud, you move, that's your military orders. But then he also talks about blowing a shofar. Okay? And he says this, he says, when you depart... When, and this is like when the tribes depart, you do this. And when you blow a shout, the camps that lie on the east side shall depart. Okay, blowing a shout. But then he says, and when, you, when the assembly is to be assembled, you blow, but you don't shout. Okay, so we blow the shofar, but we don't shout. It's a different kind. We just blow it, and that's how the assembly is signaled. Get what he says next then. When it comes to war, when you go to battle, and your land against the enemy that distresses you, then you shall shout with the trumpets and you will be remembered before Yahweh your God. Like Jericho, right? They, they were going and they were shouting, they were blowing, and then God went up before they made the walls fall. That's what happened there. That's exactly what is happening here. And so, I want to ask you a question though. When it comes to Revelation, when it comes to our Messiah coming back, he comes back, we know this scripture, he says, he comes back, I come, I mean, he's coming back with a shout. Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And he also then, if we read on, he says, and they will be assembled, right? It's this assembly of his people. But, wait a second, didn't we just read in the Torah that the battle signal for a shout if there is, is if there's a departure. Why then here is there a shout, but then in assembly, it, it goes actually against Torah in that way. It doesn't make complete sense. I want to submit to you there's something deeper. When the Father comes back, and we are his warriors, like we mentioned, right? He's primarily, he's coming back. Yes, he's coming back to gather his people, but primarily he's coming back to destroy the enemies. He's coming to come back to bring the final blow against the kingdom of darkness. And he's coming to come back as a majestic king to meet his bride. All in one. But he's coming back with a shout. It's not just a gathering. But you see, we can't be passive in this moment because we are in the war. He's just our king bringing the final blow. That's all. He's, he's just kind of come. We're here now in this moment. He's given us his spirit. His presence is on earth in us, through us. We are his warriors. We're destroying the kingdom of darkness. That's our call. As priests, we lead our families into being agents of destruction upon the kingdom of darkness. That is the point. That is what we are. We're not just a pretty bride who looks nice. We're supposed to be warriors at the same time. And then when our king comes back, he comes back with a shout and he brings the final blow. And we get to be part of it if 
you've been a warrior all along. If you've been in your role. If you've been a priest guarding your house. But then there's this question. And I've heard this many times. But Israel, they were slaves. God brought them out of Egypt. They had the slave mentality for years. They were slaves. That's who they were. That's our identity, right? They were slaves to, and you can take this to you. We were slaves to sin. And really, to be honest with you, we're all a slave to something. A slave to something. What is it that you are a slave to? I want to remind you of this, what, what God talks about and about the laws of slavery. In the Torah, he says, in the Torah, he talks about how if you are, if there is a, a husband and a family and they are in debt, they are bankrupt, they have nowhere to go, they're basically going to be homeless. That's what, you know, things happen. God provides, he says this, he says, you can put yourselves up to be servants or in that, and also the word slaves. I know we, when we say the word slaves in America, we have a certain mindset. This is different. This is a different kind of servant. You put your, he, the, the husband and the family can make themselves as servants to another man who basically pays off the debt, makes their bankruptcy go away, but the deal is they need to be working for this man for seven years. And after the seven year, seventh year, they, if they so choose, can, it's called the year of release, and they can be released. And this master is then supposed to give this family and husband everything they need to get back on their feet at the end of those seven years. It is an amazing law that the father gave so that people aren't going to be on the street and homeless, that there's care. But I want to submit to you that you're, we're all in debt. That's who we are. We came to the Father. We were bankrupt. We had nowhere to go. We were about to become homeless on the streets of our families. And then we came to Him. And you know what? You just needed someone to purchase you. And that's exactly what He came to do. He is the Master who came. And He said, you know what? I'm going to pay off every debt. Every sin. Your bankruptcy, I'm paying it off. And I'm taking you into my home. I'm going to give you freedom. You and your family, I'm going to provide for you. And you're going to dwell with me. That's exactly what Yeshua did for us. And guess what? Well, I, must, I must tell you. This is, the, I mean, this is the word, the definition for slavery, right? We know it's the, a person under the domination of an influence or person. What is it that you are still a slave to? Because he paid for it. He paid it off. That is why he paid. That's the master. He's coming. You're in his house. Imagine, he, imagine that guy. He's, he's been paid for. He's in the house. He's working in the house. And the master sees his other date that he never told him. It's like, why didn't you tell me about this date? I'm paying off all your debts. I'm making, taking the bankruptcy away. Everything I want to take. Why are you hiding it from me? Why are you hiding your sin? Why are you hiding the thing that you're a slave to still from the father? He wants to take it all. All of it. There's nothing worth holding on to. You don't need to. There's nothing to be ashamed of. He's, he wants to take it. That's what he desires to do. And so we are a slave to something. Paul said, what did he say? I am a bondservant. I am a slave to Christ. That's what he means. This is what he's talking about. Because see, you're going to be a slave to something. Someone or something in this life will at all times have dominion over you. It's either going to be the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. Which one are you going to be a slave to? 
Because see, I don't know about you, but once those seven years are up and I'm serving my master, Yeshua, the Messiah, my Savior, I don't want to go. I don't want to be released. I want to just stay in that home. And that's exactly why the option was even there in the Torah. That that man can say, I love my master. I love everything. I love his household so much. I don't want to leave this house. I want to stay in this house under the blessing of my master. And that's exactly what we choose to do. You see, God, we have choice. We have option. But you need to choose and continue. Even after seven years, you continue choosing him. That's what we see. It's not a one-time thing. God is the enemy is continuously going to tell you, you know, you, you can come out of it. You don't need Yeshua anymore. It's okay. No, continuously we're making that decision. We're saying, God, I need you. I love you. You've done this for me. I don't want to leave your house because I love you. And like I said, you need someone to purchase you. And so, brothers. 1 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and love and self-control. Those are the things that come of His Holy Spirit that is given to each and every one of you who sits here. That is the gift of God that comes when you come and dwell in His house. It comes with the deal. It's part of it. And so listen, I want, I want some elders up here right now. And everyone here who's got anything, listen to me, if there's anything that you feel you're still a slave to, if you feel there's anything that's still got a hold on you that you haven't come, man, it, it means that you're going to come forward to the Father today. And you're going to say, Father, here it is. I am not holding anything in my closet anymore. Every day I am showing, I'm being vulnerable to you. I'm putting it on the cross. I'm showing it because I, want, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to pay every debt. If that is you, I want you to come up here. Are we going to have freedom in this place from every sin? Because if we do that, we're able to live a life wholly unto our wives and we will be able to change our families, love our wives the way you're supposed to because you will never be able to love her with sin in your closet or anything like that. It's not like Yeshua couldn't do that. He had to be spotless and clean. That's how he was. When we get that way, we can love our wives, we can love our children, we can be an example to them. And then ultimately when they grow up and in these places... We can be one with each other finally. And we can ultimately finally answer the question we started with. Of how we let the world see how their, e their suffering can be eased. Because our family and our fellowships and all congregations will be an image of love. An image of this. What he did for us on that cross.